Bibles tonight, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. And we are very blessed to come back into this study of 1 John. It's a study that's really very apropos for the world that we live in today. Even though this was written 20 centuries ago, it's almost like the Apostle John could have been right off the coast of California writing a letter to the Berean Baptist Church. Because the issues that John was dealing with in that first century, uh, the very same issues affect the modern church today. Now, those original readers of John's letter are experienced some things that we're going through, uh, what we see happening. John was writing for the last times, and we're going to talk about that term just a little bit later, what he means by the last times. But if those people in his day, and he was writing for the last times, could identify with what he had to say and could learn something from it, then how much more can those of us that are 2,000 years nearer to the time that Christ is ready to come, how much more can we learn from what John has to say? Now, the issues have been the same for all of these years because the face of evil doesn't change. Satan has a variety of, of methods of attack. He uses many different methods, but his objective is always the same. And so it's no wonder that today we face the very same thing from... from uh, Satan and many of the false doctrines and heresies that we see in the world today are simply repackaged and recycled through the centuries of church history. If you go back and you look at church history, you find a revival of the very same heresies that were faced in the beginning of the church. John begins uh, the book of 1 John by refuting certain doctrinal errors about the deity of Christ, about the Trinity, an attack on the Trinity, and we face that today. And John very clearly sounds out a, a trumpet call against these false doctrines. He refutes them by his personal eyewitness account of having known Christ and been with him and walked with him, talked with him, listened to him speak. He knew where he came from. He saw the miracles. Peter did the same thing when he was... Um, talking about uh, what, who Jesus was, and he recalled that time when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he saw the glory of Christ, and he also heard the voice of God who spoke from heaven. About 300 years after the time of the Apostle John, there was a controversy that arose called Arianism, and that was the teaching that Jesus is a created being. It was an attack on the doctrine of the Trinity. And that was a controversy that was squelched for about 1,500 years of church history after that. You didn't find a whole lot of that going on. But then there was a revival of it in the 19th century. The Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses brought that doctrine back. And they teach that Christ was a created being and they don't believe in the Trinity. And so what we're seeing today is just a repackaging of those same old heresies. And in each era that those things are taught, those things gain their following. People follow after that. And it has to be refuted by the church of Jesus Christ. And so that means that we can take the very same arguments that we find in 1 John and we can use them to refute those heresies that keep popping up down through the history of the church. Now, there is an interesting word that John uses to describe those who are the purveyors of these heresies. He calls them antichrist. And that's a term that is peculiar to John's writings. He's the only New Testament author that uses that term, but it's a term that's very well documented throughout the Scriptures. 
And we're going to read what John has to say about this. And in three messages, I want to speak to you on the subject, the alarm against Antichrist. So we look in Second John, or First John, rather, chapter 2, beginning in verse number 18. He says, Little children, it is the last time... And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whoso denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught, uh, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. This evening I want to concentrate mostly on verses number 18 and 19. John says, little children, it is the last time as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now the opening two words of this section Uh, should catch our attention because here John uses a a familiar phrase that we discussed when I was preaching the sermons on sanctification. There was a brief pausing place in verses 12 through 14 of this chapter where John stopped his arguments against false teachers and he addressed the issue of spiritual growth and he showed these believers that there was a way that they could have assurance of their salvation. One of the stages of spiritual growth is infancy. These are children, as John calls them here. They're the immature. They are new believers. They've just been born again, and yet they've not yet been deeply developed in the doctrines of God's Word. In verse number 12 of the chapter, Paul used, or rather John used the word technion for children, and that is a generic term that he uses for all believers. It's a term of endearment as he considers all of these believers to be his children in the Lord. But in verse number 13, he changed the word to padion, and that word means an immature Christian. All believers are little children in the first sense that he used the word, but here he's particularly talking about the ones that have not yet been spiritually developed, and they're the ones that are considered in the second sense. And in verse number 18, he repeats that word padion, It's the only other time that he uses it in this letter. And I think the reason that he does, because he wants us to understand who is it that is most likely to fall prey to false teachings. 
Well, it would be immature Christians. It would be those that have not yet been grounded in the truth of God's word. People that are not yet able to distinguish truth from error. And those are the ones that you find most often that fall under the spell, you might say, of these false religions of cults like the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. Now, why then is a 2,000-year-old letter so appropriate for today's world? Because we think about those two groups, the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons, and they're the fastest-growing cults in America. In America that is supposed to be a, a Christian nation, there is an imperceptibility in determining which people are true Christians and which are not. And so these cults have worked their way into the mainstream and people have no idea that they don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. They don't really know that they consider Jesus Christ to be a created being. And even if they did know it, or if you should tell them about it, they really can't understand the difference in it because people just don't know as much about the Word of God as they used to know. I mean, you could expect a lot of times that even lost people could tell you some things about Jesus Christ and they believe that he was God, but now people don't even really know the difference. So we're facing the same problems, and that makes it so important for us to read and study God's Word and to see the way that John refutes these different types of heretics. Now, I want to take a few minutes... Uh, this evening to get us started into this discussion about Antichrist. And we're going to spend all of our time this evening on this first part, which is the appearance of Antichrist. Now, as I mentioned, that term, Antichrist, is peculiar to John's writing. And we've spent a lot of time discussing it in our study of Revelation. And so I know that you are very much familiar with the term. There is an Antichrist, one Antichrist, that's going to appear at the close of this age. He is one particular person who is the embodiment of evil. And he will be a world ruler that will consolidate all the world's governments. And there will be one world government under him. He'll make himself a political leader, but also he will claim to be God. Now, John's readers are already familiar with that concept. I mean, even though he's the first one to use this term antichrist, yet they're familiar with what he's talking about because we can go back into the Old Testament and we can find the same thing talked about there. The prophet Daniel, for instance, speaks of this. He says that there will come a leader who will defeat all other leaders, and he will establish a kingdom where he rules supreme. And Daniel says that that man will also be a boaster, and he will be a blasphemer against God. And so he writes in the 11th chapter of Daniel, And the king, and he's speaking there about the Antichrist, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. And so, this person that's coming fits the meaning of the word antichrist. He's anti in two ways. He's anti because he's against Christ, but he's also anti because he comes to try and take the place of Christ. And that's the way the antichrist works. He's against God, everything that's godly. He denies the true God, and he claims to be God. And so the people are familiar with that because it's a doctrine taught in the Old Testament. But they're also familiar with it because about 40 years before this time, the Apostle Paul spoke about it very clearly in the book of 2 Thessalonians. There Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, 
who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Paul there is also speaking of this one man, the one man who has the special designation as the Antichrist. And we might also notice there that Paul says, don't be deceived about this. He says, the day is not going to come except there comes a falling away first. And then that person who is the man of sin is going to be revealed. So why does he tell them not to be deceived about it? Well, he did because the people were very confused about it. They thought that they were already living in the tribulation period. They were confused about the timing of the rapture. And so Paul shows them, you can't be living in the time of tribulation because that time is going to be preceded by the falling away and then it's also going to have this man called the Antichrist who will be revealed. So you're not living in the tribulation. The concept of the one world leader as a person who claims to be God is known to the people. So John says the Antichrist will come. But then he says even now there are many Antichrists. Plural. That's in the plural, so we know he's not talking about the same as the first. He's not talking about the single man who's known as the Antichrist. Now he's talking about an attitude, and it's an attitude that is pervasive in many people that stand against Christ. These are people that are not like Christ. They're those who would attempt to lead us astray into false doctrines. They do not live, and they don't act like Christ. So what do we have in the letter? What's John trying to do for us? Well, what he's doing is that he's giving us here tests for Antichrist. Tests for Antichrist. Now, that's what we've been discussing since we started day number one in this study, in the first chapter. How do you discern who is true and who is false? So how are you going to pick out a real Christian among all these different groups that are false Christians? They claim that they're following Christ just as we do. So how are you going to tell the difference? And I think it's probably a greater problem for us today than it was in John's day because you wouldn't have a church like this one, Brian Baptist Church on the corner of this street, and go down just two or three blocks down the street and there you find a church that has the name on it, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. They claim that they're following Christ and we claim that we're following Christ, but what we teach here is way different from what they teach down there. And then you go over a a few blocks there and you'll find a Roman Catholic church. And many people think, well, that's truly orthodox because they do believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. But that group has at least a quadruple Godhead. They have a father, a mother, a son, and the Holy Spirit. And the mother, Mary, is as important or even more important than the other three. And so this is a book that helps us to identify Antichrist. It's the attitude that is against Christ. It's the false profession that pretends to be like Christ, that imitates the real Christ, but is not the real Christ. And so the scriptures that we're reading now is an expansion of that doctrinal test that we found in the first verses of chapter 1. And there John was refuting Gnostic beliefs because they did not understand the true nature of Christ. If you go down to verses 22 and 23 of these text verses, he says, Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. 
And so the test is here. If you teach that Christ is not eternal God and that he's not co-equal with the Father, then you are an antichrist. So the doctrinal test is here. But it's not just the doctrinal test. There's also uh, the other test that we've talked about. The moral test is here. An antichrist is someone who fails to meet the moral test. 1 John 2 verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And if you compare that to what we've just read in in these verses, who is John talking about? Those that are liars, those who who do not do the truth. And so an antichrist is also someone who does not keep the commandments of Jesus Christ. So an antichrist doesn't have the moral characteristics of Christ. Now, folks, I think this is something that we need to heed earnestly. I mean, you look how John describes those who are immoral. He's not dealing with people that are out in the world. He's not concerned about them. I mean, they're not pretending that they're following Christ. We know they're against Christ. They're not, they're not acting like they're Christ and we should go after them. He's not talking about those folks. He's speaking about people that are in churches. And he's talking about those that have their name on the church rolls, that they're sitting in the pews, they're listening to the preaching, they're singing the songs, and they're the ones that are doing the church work. And while they're doing all of that, they are immoral. And Paul, or rather John, says that these people are antichrist. Now, I want you to get this because this is something that I've been very much concerned about, and I've been praying about this for quite some time, and I do not understand why we have people in Brian Baptist Church that simply are not getting this. Now, I don't want to have to get on this Facebook thing all the time, but I have to go back and I have to look at that again because it's inconceivable to me how that there are people in the church that can post their lewdness and their foul mouths and all their innuendos on Facebook as if all of that was transparent. That stuff is not hidden. You're talking about something that's public. And it's bad enough if it's done and kept secret, but who has the gall to make that public if you're a member of the Berean Baptist Church? I mean, people that parade the sin in their life, they flaunt it in the face of God and the people of their church. That's a sad thing, folks. And another sad part about it is, Some of them that do it, of course, they're not here tonight because they don't care enough to come and listen to God's Word. And the Apostle John says that people who do this, they are acting like Antichrist. Now, let me tell you what you do when you see that stuff. I know some of you here maintain your Facebook accounts, and I'm not necessarily jumping on Facebook for the Facebook itself. But when you see these kinds of things that come from people that are in your church, you know what you ought to do? Right then, you ought to rebuke it. Send that person a notice and let them know that they're doing the wrong thing. And you can do that privately at first. And if you can't do it in a loving manner, then just send that person an email and post a link to the sermon. Uh, Randy's going to have it up in a day or two. And so you can just take the link, put it into your email, send it to that person, post it on their board or their page or whatever you do with that stuff. And let them know that, that, that members of Berean Baptist Church are not supposed to act like that. But let me caution you about something. And that is, the old saying is that people live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. It is godly to rebuke other people. And the Word of God teaches us that we should. Rebuke is a part of a Christian's life when he sees evil. But you have to be sure that you're not an antichrist yourself. So the doctrinal tests for Antichrist are here. The moral tests for the Antichrist are here. And then, of course, that third test is here also. That's the social test. 
If you were to ask anyone, what is the most outstanding characteristic of Christ? I doubt that anyone would say anything other than love. But the most outstanding thing about Jesus is love. Love undergirds everything about Christ. So what do you do? What do you say about a person who doesn't manifest the love of Christ in his life? Well, you only have one answer for that. They're an antichrist. If you don't have the love of Christ, that's one of the tests. You are an antichrist. John says in the fourth chapter, verse 20, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Now that seems pretty simple, doesn't it? That was the great downfall of those self-righteous Pharisees that Jesus addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. They said that they loved God but they were full of hatred for everybody else. Anybody that wasn't like them, anybody that didn't dress like them and talk like them and act like them, dotted their I's like they did, crossed their T's like they did, they hated them. So who better fits the description of an antichrist than those kinds of people? And yet, we have that same problem in the church too. We have people that claim that they know Christ, but they're angry. And they loathe other people in their church. You can see when they come to church that bitterness blazes in their eyes because they have to be in the same place where another member is. Now let me take you back to Facebook one more time. I hear it all the time. You know, I don't have a Facebook account. But don't think that I don't know what's going on because I hear all the stuff, I hear all the junk. And I also know this stuff goes on too, is the petty little wars that go on on Facebook against other members of the church, people in the church fighting with one another on something as stupid as Facebook. Well, things like that can be used for good. So what are, what are God's people messing with all the evil that comes out of that? So you have people that are angry with other members in the church. And the only thing that I can think about when I, when I think about this is what, what is it that Christ saw in you? I mean, who are you? I mean, what, what makes you something that you could... Lash out against someone else and not forgive your brother. I mean, who, who, who are you that you can do something like that? I mean, what we're talking about here is just basic Christianity. I mean, this is just the basic stuff that you get when you first get saved. Who was it that saved your unworthy soul? And what were you? What did you do? How did you act? You hated God. You had enmity against him, the word of God says. And the peculiar thing about that, if you even deny it, if you say, well, no, that's not me, then what you are, you're an antichrist because that's a person who doesn't believe what the Scripture says. So that's where you were. That's where I was. We were all in that condition, all sinners. So what right do we have to accuse other people and put them down and do all of that kind of thing? You know, this is, like I said, very, very fundamental. It's basic Christianity. If you can't do this, it's like ringing a bell from the top of the Golden Gate Bridge that you are an antichrist. So that's the point, that's the point of the epistle. Who is a Christian and who is not? Who is an antichrist? And I know the terminology is tough. Antichrist, that, that's a horrible term. But this is what he says. It's the category that you get lumped into if you fail these tests. There is a godless Antichrist that is coming, but John says there are also people that exhibit the spirit of the Antichrist right now. So if you fit the categories, if you have that spirit, you're called an Antichrist. Now let me go a little bit further. 
Next is the time for Antichrist. He says, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrist, whereby we know that it is the last time. I'm going to back up. I, I'm just thinking about this as I was reading that scripture. It's terrible that I have to get on people that are here in church that don't do a lot of the things that I'm talking about. It's terrible that I have to do it to you, but I do hope that you'll pass it along to the offenders, as I've just said. But the time for Antichrist, he says, it is the last time. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says the last time? Well, there is a lot of confusion about it. And if these people had misunderstood it, if they didn't know how to interpret what John was saying, then they would take it this way. Pack up your bags and get ready to go. And they would think that there's no use doing much else, that what we must do is we need to sit down, gather ourselves into our commune, and wait for the Lord to come. And there are some people that do that. There are the prognosticators who are convinced that there's a certain date that Christ is coming back. And so they take off and they gather their belongings and they go to a mountain somewhere. Or they do, as some people did around here a few years ago down in Oakland, go into a warehouse and all of them uh, assemble there and wait for the heavens to peel back and for Christ to come. That's not what John means and it's not what these people did. When do you have an antichrist? Well, you can't have an antichrist until you have the real thing. When Christ uh, came the first time and did all that he did, that's when he set the baseline, established a baseline for antichrist. See, to be opposed to Christ and to falsely imitate him, you have to have the the thing here first. You have to have Christ here first. And so when Christ came the first time, that's when he initiated the last days. So in the Old Testament times, they weren't living in the last days. And that's because Christ hadn't yet come. But as soon as he did come, then the world was headed for the end. The first advent of Christ was the apex. And you're going up all the way until you get to Christ came. And then when he came, you start the downhill side towards the end. And so when Christ came, that started the last day. So the whole period from the first advent of Christ until he comes again, that period is known as the last days. Hebrews says in chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the prophets or fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the world. So he spoke in these last days to us by his Son. So the Bible identifies the last days as the time after the initial coming of Christ. And the last days last unto the end. Peter speaks of Christ who redeems us and he says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And so that whole period from the time that Christ came until he comes again, this whole time period is going to be populated with Antichrist. And so the people and the heresies will come at us nonstop until Jesus comes again. And then that one major person called the Antichrist, he will appear. He'll rise to the top of the heap. But in the meantime, we're going to be doing battle against a lot of little heretics, a lot of little Antichrist who will consistently try to infiltrate the church. So when did Antichrist first appear? What was the time for them? Well, we've already looked at that in a measure, just as soon as Jesus touched ground, the Antichrists were here. 
The wise men, when they came looking for Jesus in Jerusalem, they didn't find him in Jerusalem, but instead they found an antichrist. They found Herod. And Herod, with his morbid curiosity to find out where Jesus was, intended to kill him. And so right there at the very beginning, as soon as Jesus was born, there were antichrists. You fast forward about 30 years and you get Jesus into his public ministry and the Antichrist come flooding out of the woodwork. They tried to throw Jesus off a cliff in his hometown of Nazareth. He went into the synagogues and he preached there and they plotted to kill him. And it took three years before they were actually able to do it. And then at the end of those three years, there weren't anybody le- wasn't anybody left but Antichrist. Everybody was an Antichrist in the end. There was nobody that stood up for him. There was nobody that went into the judgment hall with him and said, if he dies, we die. No, they'd all deserted him and forsaken him. It wasn't until later that they knew that he'd risen from the grave that things changed. Up until that time, they were cowering in fear and thought that hope had been lost. And so there weren't anything but Antichrist in the end of Jesus' life. And thankfully, it changed. Because when the disciples received their courage or when it was, was when Christ came in the presence of the Holy Spirit and indwelled them. And we're going to get to this a little bit later, another lesson, but in verse number 27, there you discover why true Christians can identify and stand against Antichrist. It says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now just catalog this, just put it in the back of your mind for a couple of weeks or so, that that is the Holy Spirit. The anointing is the Holy Spirit himself. He's in you and he abides in you. And if he's in you, you can't be an antichrist. So the time for antichrist is now, and the time for the antichrist is later. Now, let me wrap it up here tonight with, with an, op, an opposite observation. I, I kind of just put this on the bottom of your listening sheet tonight, and we're going to call this the disappearance of Antichrist. Verse number 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, this might be something that's a little bit hard to understand, but we discussed this when we were dealing with Matthew chapter 7, and uh, Jesus was speaking about false teachers and, and uh, their characteristics and so forth, and we learned there that false teachers and to Christ can actually benefit the church. Now, that seems a little bit odd that I would say that they, they can benefit the church, But Jesus said, you can tell who a false prophet is by his fruits. Uh, That person demonstrates the wickedness of his life by his activities. So one of the things that a false prophet does is that he gets a following. He draws other disciples away. When a heretic gets wound up and gathers his following, what does he do? Well, he doesn't stay in the church with the people of God. Darkness doesn't dwell with the light. And so the false prophet is like a vampire. When the sun comes up, he's nowhere to be found. And so the false prophet leaves. I mean, he, he can't, if he can't just utterly corrupt the church in the very beginning, then what he does, he gathers his following and he leaves. So when he goes out, who does he take with him? He takes the other heretics. 
He helps to purge the church by removing those people that are antichrist. Now, those are people that if the false prophet didn't come along, they're not the leaders. And so they're the people that are going to stay in the church and not be anything but a thorn in our flesh. Are we glad to see them go? Yes. We're glad when they leave. Now, what I try to do is that I try to hold on to every convert that we can get, and we try to lead people into the truth. But if they become subversive, then we're not upset at all if they, tear, if they leave the church. If they tear up the church, that's what we want them to do. And what they will do is they will follow an antichrist out. And when they do, that proves that they're also antichrist. So does that mean that I'm perfect in every doctrine that I teach? Well, no, I realize there are very, very rare instances where I could be wrong. But my point about it is that there are, there are people that are not antichrist, and they realize that they're not perfect either. And they know that we can't come to perfect agreement on every doctrine that there is. And unless there's a doctrine that separates us, that's fundamental to the faith, and it's an essential to our salvation and to the, the work of the Lord's church, then we're not going to separate over those kinds of issues. We can work together. But not when you have a person who wants to sow discord among the brethren. Because what is that? That's an antichrist. What does Proverbs say about it? Let me read it to you in Proverbs chapter 6. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. So what are those seven things? Well, very simply, they would be the characteristics of Antichrist. And that last one gets special attention. Six things the Lord hates, and then the seventh one gets put up on top. He that soweth discord among the brethren. And that one even gets repeated. You go down to the 14th verse. It says, Frowardness is in his heart. He deviseth mischief continually. He soweth discord. You know what frowardness means? It means habitually disposed to opposition and disobedience. So what is disobedience? It's the sign of an antichrist. It's one of the tests that John gives us. So those who fail the moral test are ones who sow discord. So an antichrist can be a means of purging the church of opposition and disobedience. And when they leave, they take out others, and they show their true colors of, as antichrist when they go. Well, I'm going to stop with that for tonight. Uh, John has sounded out an alarm against antichrist. It's not, it's not a term that he says for just the one guy that is the total embodiment of evil. He says that if you do not have the characteristics of Christ, then you are an antichrist. If you don't make the grade by passing the test that he gives, you're an antichrist. And folks, that's not a pleasant thought. It's not pleasant because the Bible's already told us what happens to the Antichrist. We know that, don't we? We're, going, we're, we're studying it in the book of Revelation. We're going to see it in just a few weeks, the great end of the Antichrist. And so you don't want to be numbered in his group. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been in your word tonight. Well, we're discussing serious issues and we need to be a church that's pure and holy, purity in our hearts. We need to be a loving church. Lord, I just pray that you would convict some of our people of some of the things that they do.
And we hate to be hard on folks, and but we have to speak the truth. Uh, we can't back off of what the Word of God teaches. We have to continually put forth truth, and we must purge the, purge the church of the, the evil that's here because we know this, Lord, that what hinders the gospel of Jesus Christ, what hinders our growth, is when there's not holiness among your people. So, Lord, I pray that we would be a holy, devout people, wholly dedicated to you. Bless us this night, and we thank you again for those who are here to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.